0: Hear God's word and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you have heard from me for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the father has put in his own authority but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful again for your word. Uh, we we begin this new study of Acts with eagerness and excitement, but also with uh, reverence and sobriety. We recognize, oh Lord, and certainly I recognize that there is uh, an ability uh, to mishandle these things, especially as we're getting to know them. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, shake uh, shake off our own folly as, as we find in these apostles here and that we might learn of you and that you would be patient with us as you were with them. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just to keep things going from the prior uh, uh, verses, verse 3, we read that Jesus... Was speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. That's the focus. We must bear this in mind as we continue on to verses four uh, through eight. Jesus is speaking to them of things concerning the kingdom of, of God. That's that's the interest of these verses, verses four through eight. That's that was his interest uh, in the Gospels. It, it was a great focus uh, of his ministry. So it becomes a focus of. The apostles' ministry is he's passing the mantle to them. We see that in verse 4 that these men were gathered with Jesus. Uh, the occasion of the gathering I've already indicated was the day that Jesus was raised, uh, not raised, excuse me, ascended. Uh, he was about to be ascended, but in doing, uh, in, in, in doing so, he, he gathered them and gave them their final commission. Uh, the uh, account of which is also recorded in Luke chapter 2, 24, verses 36 and following. We read that a few moments ago. We read in that verse that he commanded them. So he gathered them, he commanded them. I would take uh, some interest in that particular phrasing, for it's not just that he was teaching them, but one of the things that we notice is the authority uh, that was inherent in his words. The reason I would stress that is because uh, we not only notice the authority of Christ, but his authority and Uh, in commissioning them was a bestowal of authority upon they themselves. The content of his teaching, as recorded in Acts chapter 1 and Luke chapter 24, was simply to wait for the promise of the Father. They were to be his witnesses, they were to preach, but they weren't to do so right away. They were to wait. Not until they received the promise of the Father. This is the necessary prerequisite for their work. They couldn't do it until they received it. Jesus also reminds them that he had spoken of this often. One thinks of the uh, the, the, the discourse in the upper room in John chapter 13 through 17. So much uh, of the emphasis upon the coming of the Holy Spirit. That's what they were to wait for. That's what they were to look for. And once they had received That promise, they were to begin their work. That's essentially uh, the framework of the opening two chapters of Acts. And it it explains everything that follows. So they were to wait, in particular, we read, for what he calls in verse 5, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. The promise of the Father was the baptism of or with the Holy Spirit. How does he put it in this text? You shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's the language. He reminds them... Of the teaching and the preaching of John the Baptist. This is what John himself predicted. You've heard from me, he says, verse 4, verse 5. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's not just a description of John's ministry in contrast to his own. But that is actually the message of John. John himself said, I baptize you with water, but the one who's coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So this is what John predicted This is what Jesus predicted, both men telling them to look for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And in this, John and Jesus both pointed to the essential difference in these two baptisms. One was with water, the other was with the Spirit. One was external, the other was inward. As we'll see, one dealt with the old covenant, the other with the new. And so it was for this that they were to look before they took up their work of preaching in the absence of Christ. The promise of the father was the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And that's how we're to understand Pentecost, which comes in chapter two, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What is that? Well, that's the promise of the father. That is the thing for which they were to wait. That was their necessary equipment for the task of preaching and building the church. But what is meant by baptism with the Holy Spirit? Since that's how Jesus describes what will later happen on Pentecost. Well, I would note here that there are considerable differences of opinion with regard to this phrase and this event in the life, not only of the apostles, but of believers in the present century. And as a result, much confusion. I find uh, in my own readings, you may think that there's uniformity in my library. The men are reformed. Well, there isn't uniformity. This is one of the areas I find the men I'm reading, the men I admire, uh, are are made to differ with one another. And at times, I am made to differ with them. For instance, the view which Martin Lloyd-Jones takes of baptism in the Holy Spirit, which he expounds in Romans chapter 8, is not my view. I would disagree with him very strongly and, and perhaps I'll have occasion uh, to make that point in those sermons. But the point I'm making is that even within Reformed circles, there is considerable difference of opinion as to what is meant by this baptism with the Holy Spirit. And certainly when you broaden it out and you include, for instance, the Charismatic Church or the Arminian Church, you will find uh, uh, differences with ourselves. Uh, So one of the views which you might encounter is that uh, a man can be converted and yet not baptized with the holy spirit he's become a christian he's indwelt by the spirit but he isn't baptized with the spirit he's like the apostles here he 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 knows christ is lord he's been saved he's been born again but he's still looking for something further for the baptism in the holy spirit now that that's not just the teaching of the charismatics you go into their churches they say well you're a christian that's wonderful we need to baptize you with the spirit brother but uh, now, that isn't how Lloyd-Jones teaches it, but he does teach it as a second experience. Well, it was a second experience in the lives of these men, though I would not say that makes it uh, a paradigm for the believer today for reasons that I will explain. The reform position is, and my own position, is that baptism of the Holy Spirit is when a man is saved. It's when he, uh, when he becomes full of the Spirit as a result of conversion but I'm not interested in settling the dispute here, perhaps later on, and in Romans chapter 8. What I do want to stress is the nature of this baptism. It is a baptism, and what is a baptism? Well, baptism is something that happens to you. It's not something that you do. It's something that is done to you. And for that matter... It is not your going down into the water that counts. That is not the emphasis of baptism. The emphasis of baptism is that the water is poured upon you from above. Now that is true in water baptism. And that is reflected in our own practice. And that is certainly true in what is stressed here. It is the fact that the spirit will be poured out upon them from above. That's what a baptism is. That's what... Uh, that's how we should think of it. The promise of the Father is that from heaven, where Christ was exalted, and we'll later see Peter preaching this in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit would be poured out upon the church. They would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's the nature of baptism, and that's the nature of what happens at Pentecost, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And what's the consequence of such an outpouring? Obviously, Fresh power. Newfound courage. Uh, didn't we just read in Luke 24? They were terrified. Well, suddenly they're not terrified anymore in, in, in Acts chapter 2. Newfound courage. Uh, another thing. Assurance. I've been stressing that in the morning. I, I want to have occasion to stress that here as well. Assurance. Freedom. Boldness. Authority. There's that word again. They were endued with authority from on high. And so Acts becomes the record of that. What happens to a man when he is baptized with the Holy Spirit, when he becomes full of the Holy Spirit? What is he capable of all of, the, all of a sudden? We see it in the lives of these apostles. And beyond that, this is why I would differ with those who say we should look for the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a second experience we have to recognize that the reason it was a second experience for these men is that they were caught between two covenants. They were men with feet in both covenants, but that was about to change. Both feet were about to be firmly planted in the new covenant, and that would occur when the spirit was poured out. And so when we look at John's words, we have to appreciate, which Jesus quotes here, we have to appreciate the redemptive historical significance of what John is saying, he's saying, I'll baptize you with water, but he'll baptize you with water, or excuse me, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is describing not only the difference in these two baptisms, but also the difference in these two covenants. And he's saying, I come to you in the outwardness of the old covenant, and I wrap up the old covenant. But the one who's coming after me is going to come with the power and the newness of the new covenant. And that newness will be experienced As he pours out the spirit on the church. Now that's something new. That's something you couldn't experience until the new covenant had come. But now it had dawned. Or it was about to at least. The promise of the father was the dawning of a new dispensation. And that's what John the Baptist helps us to see. The outpouring of the spirit at Pentecost was the beginning of the church and of the new covenant. Now, just to be clear, if you say, well, wait a second, what about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Wasn't that the beginning of the new covenant? If you would like to begin it there, that's fine. I won't dispute it. Or, or if, if that's what you say, I would say at Pentecost. But you say, no, at the cross. Well, if you say that, then I would say, let's take it all together. Let's see it all as one. Cross, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost. There it is. But it really hasn't come to pass in its fullness until we get to that last stage but certainly we should see these things together. Well, it's amazing what Jesus is saying to these men, but it's equally amazing uh, to see how they respond because they respond in a very foolish and misguided way. They don't seem to grasp at all what Jesus is saying to them. He's saying, in essence, look for the power of the Spirit to preach and thereby bring the kingdom of God. What an amazing message. And they, they, they ask a very foolish and misguided question, although I'm going to suggest... That people are still making the same error today. They say, well, well, Lord, what about Israel? What about the kingdom of Israel? Is this this it? Is this when you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? It's it's laughable, isn't it? Uh, We can say that in hindsight, and hopefully they had a good laugh about it too. And thankfully, they had the courage to record it as well. Well, they realized two things rightly. They realized that the the promise of the Father would mean the establishment of a kingdom. They were right about that. And they were also right that in uh, somewhere in the New Covenant there would be something or other to do with Israel. They were right about that as well. And one day in Romans 11 we'll have the chance to explore that. Israel was not to be forgotten. But here was their folly. It was that they were still thinking of the kingdom of God in terms of earthly kingdoms. As though the reason Jesus came into the world was to restore the kingdom of Israel or something like that. And not only that, but not only did they think that Jesus had come to restore an earthly kingdom, but that they, they actually thought that they were meant to be kings. Now, we know that from the Gospels. One of the mothers said, Jesus, are are my sons? Will you grant to them to sit sit at your, your right and your left hand in your kingdom? In other words, will they be enabled to be kings along with you? Will they be enabled to rule with you? And you remember how he repudiates them there or her there. And so what they were doing in essence was, conflating or confusing the kingdoms of this world and the nations of this world with the kingdom of God they were still if you like theologians of glory not for long soon to be theologians of the cross but theologians of glory I'm not going to unpack that here I've done it before if, if that doesn't mean anything to you just forget it they were still theologians of glory but soon they would be theologians of the cross soon they would discover their error let me stay with this thought for a moment For I find that this error always repeats itself. Anytime anyone looks for the kingdom of God too much in this world, he's guilty of this. Whether he sets his hope on a particular nation becoming Christian or uh, or Israel as a nation. Christians who are overly preoccupied with either of these things are guilty of the error of the apostles here. Uh, A a focus on uh, outward, a focus on nations. A focus upon a nation as such, again, whether our own or Israel, Christians who are overly preoccupied with these things, I'm saying, are guilty of this. Viewing nations as the object of the saving power of Christianity, that's the error of the apostles here. Well, let us notice, first of all, what our Lord says in verse 7. He says, by the way, their question was, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And his answer was, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. And so his answer, in essence, was this. He's saying it's the wrong focus. I'm calling you to be preachers and you would be nation builders or nation restorers. Not only that, but Jesus is saying, this is an unhealthy prying into the hidden purpose of God, which would, as a matter of, uh, which, as a matter of fact, later be revealed to the Apostle Paul in Romans, not in the way they expected. God did not intend to restore the kingdom to Israel, but he did still have a purpose for Israel. He did still have a purpose for the Jews, and they're engrafting into the church. But even then, you see, the focus was upon the church, not upon kingdoms. And that is something Paul would later come to see. But let their focus be on their present task, Jesus is saying. Not on that question, but on their present task. Let them look for the coming of the kingdom in that for which they waited and was promised by the Father. In other words, set aside the question of the kingdom of Israel for a moment. And look for the kingdom in the coming of the Spirit for which they waited. Let them see, as Dr. Gaffin once said, that the kingdom comes at Pentecost. The kingdom comes at Pentecost. Now, looking at the kingdom or God's kingdom like this connection with the promised coming of the spirit with power uh, places the kingdom of God outside the realm of the kingdoms of men. It places it above and beyond them altogether. And so what is the true view if the apostles view is the wrong one? The true view is that the kingdom of God is not something you look for or find or can hope to establish among the kingdoms of this world. Well, I'm referring here to the notion of a Christian nation. That's something that uh, people are talking about today, a Christian nation. Well, what about it? Has Christ come to set up or to restore an earthly kingdom? Is that the reason for his coming? Is that why he poured out the spirit of Pentecost? Well, I'm suggesting that was the era of the apostles here. Whether you talk of Israel or you talk of uh, America or any other nation. Jesus tells them, in essence, not to focus on an earthly kingdom and an earthly power when he was calling them to bring the kingdom of God as a spiritual force into this world. Now, that is entirely in keeping with his own teaching. Jesus never spoke of his own kingdom in this way, as the disciples did here. He never suggested he came to restore the kingdom of Israel. And yet he constantly said, I'm coming to bring the kingdom of God. And if you have you any idea what I'm talking about? It was clear they didn't, even to this moment. And so, what we always find Jesus doing is distinguishing his own kingdom from that of the kingdoms of men. Uh, he says so most forcefully uh, to Pilate. You remember what he says. Uh, Pilate, in essence, is saying, are you, are you going to let this happen? And Jesus is saying, You have no idea how easily I could stop it from happening, but, but my kingdom isn't of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom, it's a heavenly kingdom. I know you don't understand that, Pilate. My own disciples don't understand it. But one day they will see my kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world, not even the kingdom of Israel, though Pilate called him the king of the Jews. And so the kingdom of God doesn't come by forces or by armies, though Jesus could command a multitude of angels at any moment. It must never be viewed like that. It isn't a matter of nations or parlitic, par, uh, politics excuse me, or parliaments. It's not a matter of the enactment of laws or anything like that. It is a spiritual heavenly kingdom. It is coming into the world, Jesus says. And its power will soon be known the whole world over. That's what he's telling the apostles. Look for the coming of the kingdom. both to Pilate and to the apostles. And so he's telling them not to focus on Israel, the kingdom of Israel, but to focus on the church. To think of the kingdom of God, not in terms of the kingdom of Israel or of any kingdom of this world, but to think of the kingdom of God in terms of the church. And thus, a focus on the preaching and upon Christian witness. That was their task, which ties It all together and brings us back to what they were waiting for. They were waiting for power. Verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They were waiting for power. A power this world cannot know. A power the world never knew. Apart from the coming of the Holy Spirit. A power far greater than the power of nations, of armies, of men. And they were to wait for this power so that they might be enabled to preach. And to spread the message of Christianity throughout the world. They were to start in Jerusalem. But the program was this. You were to spread out from there. You were to go into all Judea. You were to go into Samaria. And even to the end of the earth. And Acts as a record of that ministry. They were to be witnesses of Christ's death and resurrection to the uttermost ends of the earth. Uh, let me emphasize that word witness uh, carries with it something of the idea of an authoritative witness. Certainly the word apostle does, if not the word witness. They were commissioned to authoritatively bear witness to Jesus Christ. That was their task. You see... They were asking about the kingdom of Israel. Are are, are we about to restore the kingdom of Israel? Are we to sit on thrones? No, not at all, Jesus says. Something far more glorious. You are to preach the gospel to the nations. And many of you will die for me. And by the way, the word witness is the word martyr. You'll be martyred for me. In that sense, you will be my witness. And you will display a power far greater than any king of this world has ever displayed. What a glorious task, I say. Here, indeed, is true Christian endeavor, the witness of the church. Do you see their error here? What they ask in verse 6. For they would establish a nation and a kingdom, but God would have them turn the whole world upside down by the preaching of the gospel, clothed with power from on high. And soon they would see it too. And how eagerly they take up their work once they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'll say it soon, uh, but I'll say it now as well. We don't ever see them talking about this ever again. This is the last time they make that error. Let me return to that thought in a little bit. What I'm articulating here is the doctrine of two kingdoms or the spirituality of the church. I am distinguishing the kingdom of God from the kingdoms of men. I am distinguishing the task of the church in the task of nations. We're talking here about the church. That's the focus. We're talking about how the kingdom of God is established among men. How the kingdom of God is spread throughout the world. Yes, it will spread into the whole world, Jesus says. But it won't spread in the world by the point of the sword. But rather through the power of the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. Not as a matter of politics or nations. What we don't find these men doing is. Uh, as they engaged the leaders of the day, which we do find them doing. They did not, as preachers, seek to change the public policy of the day, nor influence political leaders. We never see them doing that. Their task was altogether greater and more glorious. Their task was that of preaching, of being witnesses to Christ's death and resurrection, preaching the message of faith and repentance, as he says in Luke chapter 24. And thereby to establish the kingdom of God. They were responsible for bringing the kingdom of God. For announcing its arrival. What was their preaching like? Well it was a preaching of the kingdom. A preaching as I say uh, about the death and resurrection of Jesus. A preaching uh, of faith and repentance. In other words they were saying this. The kingdom has come with Jesus. Jesus. The kingdom uh, has come to you now through the preaching. In other words, they preached the kingdom, but by preaching, they brought the kingdom. And as a result of their preaching, men and women were brought into the kingdom. How? By faith and repentance. When they heard with faith, when they responded with repentance, what happened to them? In that very moment, they were brought into the kingdom of God. They preached the kingdom, but they also brought the kingdom into the lives of men by their preaching. And they brought men into the kingdom. And so having believed, what do we read? I'm going further into Acts. Well, they went about preaching this message. And as a kind of refrain throughout Acts, we read uh, that day by day, men and women were added unto the church. What are they saying? Or what is Luke telling us? He's telling us that the kingdom of God was, was spreading among men. And men and women were, were, were uh, being brought into the kingdom of God. They were being baptized They were being catechized and so on. They were brought into the fellowship of believers. They were enjoying the power and the life of the kingdom of God. Indeed, that is the whole glory of the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter what particular nation you belong to. It really makes no difference. What matters is solely whether you have faith, whether you've repented. That's what matters. And that's how you come to experience the kingdom of God. And so their preaching was... As Paul later says, and certainly as we see in Acts chapter 2, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2, it was a powerful demonstration of the spirit and of power. The power of what? Well, the power of the kingdom of God. And again, what we see is that the kingdom of God does not come into the lives of men like the kingdoms of this world. You remember what we pray, thy kingdom come? Well, that's what these men were not only praying, but they were executing. They were bringing the kingdom. They, in other words, they were establishing the rule of God. And that's what we're praying, too. When we say thy kingdom come, we're saying, Jesus, rule over me, rule over me and rule over others, too. We want to see your kingdom established among men. We want to not only have a part of this kingdom, but we want to see others brought into this kingdom. And how are they brought in? Well, they're brought in in the spiritual fashion. By being born again like you and me as a result of hearing the preaching of the gospel. In other words, when I say it's spiritual, I'm saying it is a result of the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching. That's how the kingdom of God spreads. That's how men and women are brought into it. That's how they're brought under the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. It's by becoming Christians. It's by coming into the church. It's by coming in counter with the preaching. Now, that's why they must wait for the promise of the spirit for his outpouring was the essential prerequisite for their task. As I've said, it was to be a spiritual kingdom. What do I mean? I mean that it's a spiritual kingdom. It was a kingdom which was full of the life and the power of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, and there is there's something here. This is something that I'm, I'm just, well, I'm just meditating on. I don't know much I have to say about it here, but I'll just say something. There's something here about the order that we find in verse eight. It says, "You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem." That order is is arresting to me. It's significant. The order is this. Wait, wait for the spirit, wait for the fullness of the spirit. And then become witnesses. First, know and experience his power. Then Christian witness is something that becomes all but inevitable. Once you've got the power, then you've got the witness. And it is inevitable that men will listen to us and they will come into the church. Well. Let us see this as the great task of the church in the new covenant. The task of Christian witness, the task of preaching. And let the power of the kingdom that absorbs us be that which is spiritual, that which is the result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, known particularly in the preaching. If we are looking for power, let us look for that It is not, I say once more, a matter of politics or of nations? Now, am I saying, let me just try to be clear. I might get this question, so I'll I'll try to answer it here. Am I saying that these things don't matter? I'm saying that, well, the kingdom of God has come into the world, so never mind politics, never mind nations. These things don't matter. Don't hear me saying that. I'm not spiritualizing your citizenship or your fatherhood or your job or anything like that. I'm not saying this is the only thing that matters. And I am thankful that many, indeed all of you as a result of becoming Christians, have done uh, good for this land and for your family and in your jobs as a result of becoming Christians. But you see, even then, I'm stressing uh, the particular order. The order is this, become a Christian first, then seek to do good. In other words, men and women need to be born again. They need to become Christians first. That's the primary thing. Of course, there are those, and I would never seek to discourage it, so I want to be clear about it. There are Christians who go into politics. One thinks especially here of Wilberforce. But what was the secret of his success? It was that the man was a Christian. That's why his testimony is so inspiring even today. And so place that in the first place and recognize that that is always the primary focus of the church. And whatever good we are doing for nations or for uh, or, or or, in our vocations or whatever is only as a result of our coming into saving contact with the kingdom of God. And so what I'm saying is this, that the order is, certainly with respect to the church, the great task of the church, that's my final point, is the priority of the kingdom of God as a spiritual kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's a... It's a it's a uh, it's a heavenly kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus says. We maintain that commitment. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says, in another place. We must never confuse these things. We We need to understand as Christians the difference between being a citizen of America and a citizen of heaven. I'm not saying you're no longer a citizen of America. Nothing of the sort. But I'm saying that if you're a Christian, you're a citizen of heaven, and that is your primary allegiance by a long ways. And that that ought to inform in every way what it means to be a citizen of America. Or of whatever country you happen to belong to. Do not confuse the kingdom of God with the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God is something far more glorious. Something heavenly. Something spiritual. Something that men and women only enter by faith as a result of hearing. Hearing. Hearing the preaching, it is an an encounter with the power of the Holy Spirit. Is that how you understand the kingdom of God? Is that what you understand Jesus to be telling the apostles here? Do you see that as the present task of the church? I would note here. I said I would make this point again. The apostles never make this same error again—not once. We find them in Acts always preaching the kingdom. That—that is a message that fills their preaching. Uh, I I never realized that, in fact, until recently in my study of Acts. But it it is a prominent theme, and no surprise here, Jesus is talking to them about things concerning the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And, and, And he sends them forth full of the power of that kingdom, even the power of the Holy Spirit. And so they are preachers of the kingdom of God, but never in terms of earthly kingdoms, and certainly not in terms of the kingdom of Israel. Always in terms of the reign and the rule of Jesus as he has ascended on high. A reign and a rule that is experienced in saving men and women. His grace to save. His, his power to bring us into the kingdom of God by repentance and faith. And thus adding us unto his church. And I said this already. I'll, I'll expand upon it. We even find them at times preaching to rulers. I think that is instructive. What was their message to rulers? And we find it early on by the way. And all through the book of Acts, well their message was this: It was, "I've got a kingdom to tell you about, and it's nothing it's not to be found in this world. It's the kingdom of God. The kingdom, by the way, the kingdom of heaven. Let us also see that the kingdom of God is the kingdom of heaven. I think that helpfully frames the issue. And when they preached to rulers, They sought to save them. They sought to convert them to Christianity. Not to convert them to this or that political position. That wasn't, you can imagine, that was the opportunity they had. It might have been the temptation. It isn't what they did. Do you understand the difference in what I'm stressing? And how it was the baptism with the Holy Spirit that brought about the the great change in these men. They were preoccupied with the kingdom of Israel. Their own kingdom. But not anymore. They began to have a worldwide focus. They became preoccupied with the church. As a result of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. I also find they conceive of the kingdom of God. As something rather than endearing us to the kingdoms of this world. As something that brings hostility. And thus we're not surprised to see how much they suffered. At the hands of rulers. In the book of Acts. Acts chapter 14, verse 22, we read of them strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. What a helpful phrase there. That's how you enter. You enter into the kingdom of God, in many cases, by suffering at the hands of the kingdoms of men, wicked rulers, throwing you in jail, even putting you to death. Oh, but by faith, by perseverance, you've entered the kingdom of God. You've gotten something better. You see, not by making friends of this world. Did Jesus ever say that? Do the apostles say it now? No. By tribulations. By suffering at the hands of men. By making enemies. That's what they were doing here. They were making enemies. They were suffering for Christ's sake. They were suffering tribulations of this world. Not only they themselves, but they were telling others to expect nothing less. Is that not another clear indication of the spiritual and heavenly nature of this kingdom? Not a matter of the kingdoms of this world. That isn't what they were establishing or restoring. Not in any sense. No, for the kingdoms of men may kill you. And in the case of these men, they did. They may oppose you. They may throw you in prison. Oh, yes, even the so-called Christian nations of the past. How many Christians have died in such nations? How many Protestants died at the hands of Catholics? And yet, do you realize that the kingdom of God goes on? It's unaltered. It's unharmed. It's speeding on, even in such cases, through the testimony of the martyrs. It was never made. The kingdom of God was never made to depend upon such things. The kingdom of God goes on, though its choicest servants are murdered and put to death by the kingdoms of men. And so... My interest as a preacher of the gospel is what we find here. And it's what we find in men like Machen and so many others. My great interest is their great interest. Namely, well, not the pressing social or cultural issues of the day. I know we're all interested in those, so am I. Uh, Maybe more than you are. That's not my great interest in preaching. Here's my great interest. My great interest is that... Men and women stand outside the kingdom of God. That is the most pressing issue of the day. It will always be the most pressing issue of the day. They've yet to enter enter in. They've yet to experience by faith the saving power of the kingdom. That's what they need. They need to be made Christians. And short of that, well, I don't have much hope for them. I don't have much hope for any man who isn't a Christian. Oh, but a man who is a Christian, a man who's been saved, who's been brought into the kingdom of God. Well, is there anything he can't do? Men and women lack faith. They haven't repented. They need to know about Jesus. That's the great thing. They need someone to tell them. The, the task of the church is today what it always was. As Machen says in the responsibility of the church in the new age. I don't, I don't remember the full quote. But I do remember him saying that. It is today what it always was. The preaching of the gospel. That's it. As a preacher and as a churchman. I do not concern myself with politics or nations. I do as a citizen, but not as a preacher. I concern myself rather with this. Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Amen. Let us uh, return our praise to God. We've got a long hymn. It's a new hymn. And I would say it's nine verses Hymn 401.